This is Know You're Wrong, where pointless disputes are fiercely debated. On today's episode, we answer the mail. Over the last couple months, we have been shocked to learn that our listeners exist. But you do exist, and you are an opinionated bunch of nerds, and we want to respond to some of your thoughts on our various disputes. Joining me here in the brand new Wrongcast Treehouse in Brooklyn is my one true pen pal, Kate. Hi. She's groggy from flu medicine, but, you know, underestimate her at your own risk. Firing on at least half of my cylinders. Beaming at us from across the river, the textastic Mr. Isaac. Hello. All right, let's answer some mail. Our first message comes to us from Erin Horrigan of the Lithium Jubilee podcast. She wrote to us the day our first episode dropped, before even listening to it, to say, I don't know anything about the DC movies, but I know I will be listening to your podcast today. I hope the fact that Jason Momoa is hot comes up, because that's the only thing I have a firm opinion on. Now, I think this is a subject we really failed to address in the depth and detail that it merits, so let's dig in. Kate. Is Jason Momoa hot? Yeah, certainly. Isaac? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, 100%. Okay, so, Aaron, uh, yes, Jason Momoa is super hot. Uh, sorry for the oversight. <laughs> well, no, because I know that uh, Kate certainly thinks Jason Momoa is good-looking, but does not like the Aquaman character because Jason Momoa is too much of a dude bro or mm-hmm. the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> Kate, is it, does his hotness save it for you? I mean, you know, yeah, he's enjoyable to watch. Like, mm-hmm. it just, he was, his character Does was his abs. so stupid. So did his character ruin the enjoyment of, of staring at him? I don't know. Like, kind of in a way, because they had that, like, shot of him, like, coming out of the ocean. And right. there's, like, there's, like, seawater, like, dripping down his abs. Right, but it's, which should like, have just been, like, pure stupid, enjoyment. I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I. But you thought it was dumb. I did. I thought it was really dumb, but it. You know, he's he's enjoyable to watch on screen. That's that's absolutely. All right. Look, me and Cannon enjoyed that moment. <laughs> you don't have. <laughs> this he's is like, all true. He's like drinking whiskey in the water, <laughs> while like hard metal is playing. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on to episode two, the Jurassic question. Friend of the show, Jason Nixon of the Wake Up Sheep People podcast and our guest on our fourth episode had a lot of thoughts. He wrote, I think Kate's argument about there being other animals going extinct is weak because if we can learn how to cogently bring back one species, then nothing goes extinct. Um, Resources. Yeah. I mean, I I think that the the problem with that is that even assuming we could develop the technology to revive one species... It would be, as I think Isaac just pointed out, like very resource intensive. So I I don't think that being able to like in some circumstances bring back one species would be like an answer for like mass extinction events, which is what we're experiencing right now. I agree. I think that uh, in fact, like we don't necessarily have the technology to uh, bring back species at the moment but we certainly have the the way to stop them from going extinct and we're uh, failing at that pretty miserably right now so you actually agree with kate that we should focus on on our our money and our energy on 
preventing existing re- oh, species from going not. extinct. <laughs> Dinosaurs, guys. <laughs> okay, so you agree that we have limited resources, but you think we should use those limited resources on bringing back dinosaurs? Yeah, I, I actually do. Okay. Kate, is it possible that, like, dinosaurs are exciting enough that they could, they could like, get the public funding and, you know, like, people would make donations towards, like, bringing back the dinosaurs and you could sell passes or whatever, and that would be how you'd fund the... Uh, the research and development of the technology needed that we could then use to save all the other species. I I mean, I I think that's the argument that is often made about giving resources to private corporations, um, like that that they're going to use it to make the world better. And I don't, I have, I can't think of an example where that's actually happened in any kind of meaningful sense, you know, like. I mean, Xerox sort of created the personal computer. Yeah, but it's, it's I, I don't know, you know, time. like there's the Ford Foundation or whatever, but like, yeah, I just, you know, I think if we're imagining the like theme park kind of idea that we were talking about um, uh, during the episode, I, I think that means that it's a private corporation that's responsible for the development and maintenance of these creatures. And like, I, I don't think that you can depend on capital to increase the well-being of anything but capital itself yeah that that sounds right to me and also i mean i don't know i guess the other thing i'll say is that like notoriety alone is not like necessarily necessarily a recipe for mass involvement in an issue like you know the ice bucket challenge got like however many millions of shares and like people posting those videos online but it actually didn't result in in that many donations to the to ALS foundations really yeah I mean it did it like it was like a sort of minimal uptick in wasn't it like twenty dollars to this person or I'm doing the ALS thing for $20? no it was the, the way that it was structured was it was like this is a nomination like it's not like requiring the person to make a donation it's like I I nominate you to do the ice bucket challenge and then everybody's like sharing it but so it raises awareness right but it but also like I know about ALS uh because because of that no because, like, I have a friend of ours who's been affected by it, and I know about the Ice Bucket Challenge, and I honestly did not remember that the Ice Bucket Challenge was intended to raise awareness of ALS. Right. I knew it was, like, for some cause, but all I really Big remember was Chris, Chris Pratt, like, having di- ice dumped on his head, all right. like, twice, right? And he gets annoyed the second time, and it's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. Jay also wanted to know if we had considered, quote, a 24-hour live stream of the park as a relatively harmless way to monetize the park. It's a very common practice as a way to raise funds for animal studies and refuges. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that takes away from my argument about the park being motivated by profit and so, like, leading to opportunities for the animals to be, or the creatures or dinosaurs or whatever, to be exploited and mistreated. Do you um, think, like, the hawks on hawk cams are exploited and mistreated? Um... Yeah, like the ospreys or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah that's that's a, that's an interesting idea. Um, now, someone still has to put that there. Like, it's not it, there aren't no human interactions with the dinosaurs, but it. I think that is something fundamentally different from a zoo, and mm-hmm. you could imagine someone doing it. I think that the main difference is is just how expensive it would be, and and so then you sort of wonder if anyone would really do it without a profit motive. Well, yeah, I mean, and I guess you the question would be whether you could get enough sustaining 
financial contribution from people who are, I mean, I, I don't know, how much are people going to pay per month or per view or whatever to see dinosaurs? Yeah. Like as probably not nearly as much as they would pay to fly there and then have to like stay in a hotel and be on the, you know, in the resort. Right. I think you could make a profit off of the zoo. You could be like, okay, we have webcams of the zoo, but either you have to come to the zoo to see all of them or spend a hundred dollars online. <laughs> To see the webcam. Would you pay for it to see the dinosaur webcam? They're dinosaurs, yeah. I mean, look, it's, I think, like, a big, big factor of, of like, profits is that they're dinosaurs. <laughs> like, nobody's ever seen a dinosaur before. They're amazed, even for people who aren't nerds like me. Like, yeah, oh yeah, I want to see a dinosaur. Like, why not? <laughs> yeah. Would you, if we brought back dinosaurs and the only way you could ever experience them was like watching a webcam on your computer, would you be satisfied with that? Or would you be like, this is stupid? Um, knowing what comes out of the alternative of having a park, yeah, I'd be satisfied. I mean, look, I'd like, I would want more dinosaurs, but if there's a park where I can see them, then there's like, then there's some bad things going on. And I'd rather, I'm happier th- knowing that that's not happening. So then here's my question. Like, you can already see dinosaurs that are incredibly realistic and believable, like, created by, by computer animation in movies. Uh-huh. Is it that different to be able to see video on your computer of actual dinosaurs? Like, what you're seeing mm-hmm. is yeah, very I similar. Think so. Why? Well, number one, because I think dinosaurs pictured in movies are actually pretty different than what they actually were. Okay. Like, who knows? Maybe the T-Rex had fur. Okay. But all, or whatever. Uh, but also, I just think that, like, there is a whole... Sure, visually, it would be the same. But in your brain, there would be a tick being like, that's a real dinosaur. Just like how in Rogue One, that's not a real human. Right. right. Like, yeah. Even though Tarkin, I thought, looked really good, and it's a, like, CGI masterpiece. Like, that's not a real human, and you know it. Is it possible that if this was the way the it was like monetized that there would be um, like a problem of like hoax streams? Yeah, that was exactly what I was about to like, say. And so then, how do you actually know that it's a real dinosaur that you're looking for? There would be like one website. Oh, you mean you mean that? Who knows if there's actually a dinosaur? Right. Like say say the say the official stream is like you know really expensive and most people can't afford it and like some company says like hey we've hacked their stream like we'll charge you five bucks for it so you can see a dinosaur and it's not a dinosaur it's just like a fake dinosaur like or what if the company that the official stream is fake Mm -hmm. if everyone believes it's real is everyone like full of joy and they think they're seeing dinosaurs and is that the same thing i mean because my point is that you would never have any confirmation unmediated by a computer and the internet of what you were looking at news so. You just have to hope that, like, the New York Times would hit, hit you up. Right. Fake right. news, man. But it, but it seems to me that, like, believing that the video you're watching is real is more important than it's being real. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can bring all this joy to people by just, like, doing an elaborate hoax, and we don't have to actually find a place to put real dinosaurs. Yeah. Problem solved. Boom. Isaac, you love this idea. I can hear you loving this idea. Problem not solved because I won't get to ride the T-Rex. Okay, okay, okay. I need a T-Rex to ride into battle. Yeah. I'm just going to let you know. All right. Park it at I school. Really, be like, yo, what's up? I don't know why you want to ride a T-Rex into battle rather than a Triceratops. A Triceratops has like a built-in saddle. Oh, my God. It's a T-Rex, dude. Yeah, a T-Rex would be kind of hard to ride because they're so upright that you'd basically be like clinging to the side of a building. Yeah, riding a T-Rex, riding a 
that Triceratops into battle is so awesome. You sit on its neck behind the like the shield. You've got built-in armor. You get to like charge at things with its horns. That would rule. I would totally kill you on your T-Rex. Well, I wouldn't kill you, but I would kill your T-Rex with my Triceratops. Oh my god. My T-Rex would destroy your Triceratops. Have you ever seen dinosaur documentaries, dude? T-Rex has destroyed the tri- Triceratops. Unless there was multiple Triceratops, then the T-Rex would lose. Yeah, I think that's actually not how anything happened, but okay. I actually uh, think it is how it happened, uh, sir. <laughs> Fight me. All right, so uh, episode three, Superhuman Regulation. More from our friend Jason Nixon, friend of the show. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Yeah, he had a lot of opinions. Jason writes, so I think a voluntary registry would be a good idea. Like, apply for a permit to use your powers. And if you don't want to, fine, but then you can't use your powers in public. And then a slightly different path for entering into law enforcement than regular humans as well. Like, if you want to join the military, it could only be the UN peacekeepers. Of course, good luck getting that deal from every country on Earth. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting idea. Here's the thing, though, is, like, there are plenty of people. If, if it was like, okay, guys, come over here, get your permit. What if they're like, yeah, my power is just, like, when I hiccup, like, 100 people just die. <laughs> oh, here's your permit to use that power, sir. Have a nice day. Right. Like, what? So, well, so the agency no. would determine whether powers could be... A- could be right but then after signing up to that then the agency be like okay this guy's gonna hiccup and kill 100 people we have to deal with this right now so then they would have like figured it out but i guess i'm arguing against my argument in three (laughs) yeah you also sort of argued against your dinosaur argument for a while so jason raises another point he says that this uh the, the episode brought to mind harry potter for him and how basically every magically inclined person is registered there, and you can sign up to be law enforcement, but they still take it upon themselves to be protectors of the normals. Yes, but that's a secret, like, land run by run by the people who are also special, you know? people who, The people who are run, running the uh, mutant registry, say the U.S. government, those are not the mutants. Those are the people trying to deal with the mutants. Yeah, I, like, I, I think it's... Um... It's really different if you imagine an entire society that is comprised of and governed by people with powers, you know, like, because you can, I mean, the the part of the problem of governments when it comes to regulating these, like, beings, as we talked about, is that there there's a lot of, like, fear and confusion about, like, you know, like, it's hard to relate, like, to superman it's hard to relate to somebody who's super strong or super fast if you're just a regular person you know like scandinavian countries it's like a lot easier to have like socialized medicine and like strong social safety nets because they're very like culturally homogenous and like it's much easier to feel like you're taking care of your neighbor if your neighbor like looks and acts a lot like you although i guess i don't know i guess maybe he's talking about like the the supernatural beings creating their own kind of yeah, he's saying, and... like, like you let them create their own kind of governmental body, and that body can treat with yours, and it regulates its own people. Yeah. I actually think it's a really strange argument to make, because the entire plot, the overarching plot of the seven Harry Potter books, is that that body is incredibly corrupt and in the hands of, like, its most malicious faction, right. and and not only tries to kill all the normals, or the muggles, as they call them, but, like... Uh, tries to suppress 
fascistically suppress any sort of benevolent force within its own ranks. Uh, I mean, it's it's specifically about how this kind of an agency with that kind of an oversight power can be corrupted. And then I think has a really strange ending where like Harry Potter's like, yeah, I'm a cop now too. <laughs> but but um, I guess the idea is like you want good people to be cops. I, I don't know. Yeah. But I but I think that like that still gives us the problem of how do we know that it's Professor Xavier and not Magneto right. in charge of that yeah, agency? You have to deal with the Magneto problem, I think. Right. Yeah. And as as we've seen, like in our own current political moment, like governments change hands all the time, right? Whatever kind of like governing body it is. And so it's going to be in a benevolent person's hand one day and in a malicious person's hands the next day. I agree with everything said. <laughs> So you think that we should let like superhuman organizations create their own regulatory bodies or like that they need to be regulated by regular people? I think there are problems with both. Yeah, both options. Certainly. And honestly, I can't really see which one's better. Yeah. On it, like, really? Um, I just think that this is a, an idea. This is a thing where it's like, look, no, every outcome is not great, but it matters. It's like matters enough to where we just kind of have to go for it yeah as in like a lot of bad stuff can come with having a mutant registry right but like a lot of bad stuff probably more a lot more bad stuff could happen without having one so it's just a whole like we have to have this mutant registry how can we do it in the way that's least like death for all mutants right right i will say that if i were a president or a senator when like something like the events of the first two x-men movies took place I would resign. <laughs> That's wise, because there's no way you're going to get out of that job with people thinking you were good at it. Um, but I would try to fund more schools like Xavier's that offered both like physical training for people to kids to understand their powers, but also sort of counseling for them to deal with the resentment they feel and and the you know the challenges of being different and those schools would like offer degrees and licensing to like certify that people could be trusted to use those powers and that wouldn't solve all of the problems but i think that that would be like a positive humane approach that would like maybe inspire fewer pyros yeah all right uh moving on to episode four uh pokemon go to the Go for the gold, uh, our esports episode. Um, you snobs should listen to it. Yeah, you guys did such a bad job. Yeah. You horrid, horrid listeners. listeners. Just love we you guys. Uh, we do love you, but not nearly as much as we would love you if you listened to that episode, which is really good. It's like one of the best ones. It has Jason. Yeah, in Jason, it. who's had all of these these interesting Step comments. Uh, he's great. Apparently, uh, we do have a listener who has lots of. Uh, comments on that episode but she hasn't sent them in yet so not gonna call you out by name Mael but uh, why don't you get your notes to us already you will not be surprised to learn that we had the most feedback on episode five our most listened to episode our most hotly debated uh, well Virginia it's complicated what should you tell your kids about Santa Claus listener Megan writes to say I needed the Well, Virginia, It's Complicated like two weeks ago when my eight-year-old put me on the stand with a line of questioning about how he thought, quote, it's hard to believe that parents are not the ones who bring all the presents on Christmas. We decided to keep him believing one more year. This is the whole question, right? Like, do you, I don't know, do you insist that your, your children believe in Santa Claus? And then when they question it, do you insist that they continue to believe? I, In my personal opinion, like, I wouldn't, 
I, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, I mean, uh, we don't have kids. I don't want to backseat raise anyone's kids here. I will say, uh, Megan, that I don't think that uh, as we've discussed, as we discussed in the episode, I don't think anyone was like super traumatized by this, and I don't think you can really do anything terribly wrong in one one direction or the other. Yeah, no, of course. But not. I will say, at the point where your kid is like has more or less figured it out maybe that's the time to congratulate him on on how smart and clever he is uh rather than say like no you're wrong not telling them results in uh me getting in trouble for telling a kid in my grade many years ago that santo it was was yeah (laughs) and their religion was wrong so consider this don't get isaac in trouble yeah. I got in way more trouble than I thought it was. Did you really? Like, my teacher was pretty upset. What were there? Were there any actual consequences? No, there was no. There were no consequences, but, you know, I had to apologize and stuff. You had but to, it, it, it did feel kind of You had crappy. to apologize for telling your friend the truth. That's yeah. astounding to me. Yeah. I said, I said, Santa isn't real. What? You just think that fat guy fits down the chimney and gives you all your presents. And my my teacher got mad at me and said, apologize. The thing is, look, I can see how someone might think you were being a little obnoxious, but you were being like regular kid obnoxious. And you were telling a kid the truth. Like, that seems like a crazy thing to get in trouble for. Yeah. Also, the teacher didn't even hear the me being obnoxious part. She just heard the person who I told her to being like, hey, Isaac told me Santa wasn't real. And then she got mad at that. Not even the whole fat guy fits down the chimney thing. <laughs> and all of this is, I think, really why, like, the Tom solution is the way to go. Like, I I mean, I grew up, my parents told me there there was a Santa Claus. Um, I honestly don't remember how I, like, when I figured it out. Um, I wasn't traumatized by it, like, certainly. Um, but, you know, that said, even though I don't necessarily, I don't believe, like, if I have a kid that I would tell it that it should believe in Santa Claus, but I do think that there is, like, a magic to Christmas, and, like, it would, you know, maybe we should just say, like, look, this is, like, a nice story about, like, Santa Claus and the reindeer, and, like, you know, it's a story, like, the stories that I tell you at bedtime. Yeah, so keep the story going on, but just replace the role of Santa with parents. Just be like, okay, we're giving you the parents, the presents, but, like, here's this cool story about a guy who used to give kids presents or whatever or something. I don't know. Yeah. But then they'd be like, why isn't he giving us presents now? And then they'd, and then you'd be like, ah, he's dead. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I'm sort of fine with whatever parents want to do. But I, I do think your kids saying to you, like, hey, here's, here's the evidence that I've assembled is maybe a good opportunity. That's how you know they're ready. Right. And maybe to sort of engage the child about you like, well, how did you come to this conclusion? But also then make sure you let them know, like, hey, don't tell your friends that Santa Claus isn't real. Right. Now, our, our listener, uh, Jason Viola, who is an expecting parent himself uh, and a fantastic cartoonist behind uh, Herman the Manatee and many other, other great stories, uh, wrote to us to say, my friends who have small kids and I were just talking about the Santa question. I guess I agree that there may not be significant harm in perpetuating the myth, but I also don't see the gain except Mm -hmm. as a disciplinary threat, which is how I see him used. Mm. Do you want me to tell Santa? Oof. I disagree that Santa embodies the spirit of generosity. He is more of a spirit of rewarding good behavior, especially now with his shelf elf spies reporting back every day. Right, the elf on the shelf thing. So I don't see the purpose in efforts to convince kids that Santa is literal truth. 
Kids play make-believe all the time. Why can't they participate in the Santa game and not have adults insist that he's real? Yeah, I mean, I think that the point about him being the spirit of, like, discipline is interesting because we we simultaneously tell this story about, like, a magical elf who lives on the, the North Pole and, like, just gives out gifts because he wants to, but then also, like, if you're not a well-behaved child, you won't get gifts. So there's like this sort of threat lurking behind it. I also think attaching gifts to your behavior is a really like, to me, troubling way of of introducing this really pervasive and I think really harmful idea in our culture that your wealth and social status is a function of your moral standing. Uh, you know, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Like this sort of totally pervasive idea we have that people who are poor are that way because they aren't virtuous and hardworking enough. Uh, and people who are wealthy are, are that way because they worked hard. And I think that, um, if you sort of introduce kids, there's really early age, like you get presents for being good rather than for being loved, um, which is why kids actually get presents. And I don't, I don't think there's any harm in telling them that. Um, then they sort of are going to look at their friends who maybe don't celebrate the holidays or who get fewer gifts than they do because their parents don't have as much money and start to make this kind of moral distinction, um, which A, has no basis in fact, and B, I think sort of sets up a really uh, troubling framework for understanding wealth and consumption. Yeah, I mean, that. That's a good point, but I, I think it, it's sort of, it, a lot of it just depends on how that kind of rewarding is framed. You know, like, I think there's no problem with in rewarding a child for being kind or, or generous or, you know, like, being good in a way that's, that's actually, like, benefiting others. Like, I, I don't, I don't think necessarily the, the idea of rewarding actually good behavior leads to those um, consequences directly. Don't you think it's different if a parent rewards good behavior than if an unseen, all-knowing force yeah, rewards yeah. or punishes that behavior? Yeah. Well, and what I mean, I guess what I'm talking about is a parent doing that right. and not like some kind of, you know, right. red, fat red ghost. At, and, then I, and then the elf on the shelf thing, I think, creates this sort of different concern. Um, you know, I can't help but notice that it appeared sort of at the same time as we were learning about um, the extent and pervasiveness of our own surveillance state, the extent to which our own government is keeping tabs on everything that happens all the time. When did the... It's like relatively recent, right? Let's look it up. Uh, Elf on the Shelf was a book made by Carol V. Ibersold. Okay. Uh, when in 2005 the children's picture book came out, little elf was sent from the North Pole to watch over children. Oh, to watch over children and, and was, not to surveil them? No, to tell to tell, tell Santa about the children's behavior. In the last decade, the elf has collected numerous accolades, including Learning Express Best Toy Award in 2008, nine, and ten. So when did the toy appear? Uh, 2009, 2008. Sorry. Okay, so the book appears in 2005, the toy appears in 2009. In 2001, in the wake of 9-11, we passed the Patriot Act, uh, which uh, ramps up the just extreme surveillance of American citizens by our government. In 2013, I believe, the Edward Snowden revelations uh, come to light. 
uh, just like how extensive those programs are. And then we have sort of continued to learn more and more about them since then. Um, and I and I just can't help but feel that I don't think it's intentional, but that it is a sort of resigned acceptance of the idea that we're being watched all the time. You have to be on your best behavior all the time because you never know who's watching you. This kind of um, normalization and acceptance of the panopticon and that this the elf on the shelf is a way of like introducing kids to this reality at a very but young age. I, don't, I mean, don't you think that was always the story that kids were told about Santa Claus? Like, I, He sees you when you're sleeping. He sees you he when you're when sleeping. You're you know, like, it, he always knows. Like, he's he is, as you said, the, the all-seeing, all-knowing. The all-powerful um, god. Whatever. So, I mean, I, I guess it's shifted a little bit in that the elf on the shelf sort of embodies that in a physical way. And yeah. You feel like you have eyes on you, but, that like... It was always the case that kids were told, like, you're in the panopticon, like, like Santa always knows what you're doing. Yeah, I guess so. I think it's one thing to, like, be thinking about Christmas for two weeks before Christmas and get your kids to behave well for those two weeks, as opposed to, like, this elf that sits on your shelf all year. Wait, the elf sits on your shelf all year? Look, kids, kids are, are, are ready for Christmas the day after Christmas. I think the whole, like, kids on the best behavior of the last two weeks before Christmas, that's, like, wrong. Just the whole year. Like... When you're a kid, like, Christmas is everything. Christmas and your birthday. So I feel like if you, you could just use that whole Santa thing throughout the whole year, not just the last two weeks. Maybe. That wasn't... I, I Time goes so slowly when you're a kid. I feel like Christmas seems like too far away to worry about its consequences. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a kid, you, know, you honestly believe a lot of the things your parents say. So they can be like, look, Santa's always watching. That's true. So that's very true. I, that's just what I think. Right. I don't know. Uh, yeah, and Jason's final point, of, of which I absolutely approve, was that Mom made some interesting points, but I still agree with Kennan's. Uh. Love that listener. Jason Viola, write in any time. Uh, on the other side of the coin, uh, Aaron Horrigan of the Lithium Jubilee podcast writes, Wow, your mom came out swinging. This is fantastic. She's the coolest, smartest lady ever. My 2018 podcast resolution is to be half as interesting and well-planned as this episode. Aaron, uh, don't change a thing. Your podcast is fantastic the way it is. It doesn't need to be altered in any way. Um, my mom definitely came out swinging. Yeah. I don't think I enjoyed that as much as Aaron did, but yeah. I'm glad it was fun for everyone else. <laughs> um our listener, Eliza, uh, who uh, used to do with with Jason Nixon a podcast called All Debates Are Belong to Us, which was a huge influence on our show. Um, he writes in to say, just to be clear, Dog Santa is a Puerto Rican Jew. Uh, this is interesting. He, he also sends along photographic evidence of uh, a man I can only assume is Dog Santa, mm-hmm. Santa Claus mm-hmm. with... A series of very adorable dogs. We will put these photographs up on uh, Twitter. You guys can come check them out for yourselves and see what you think. Um, I, I'm not prepared to investigate anybody's ethnicity by a photograph, but uh, it, it certainly seems plausible that this Santa is Puerto Rican and Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. What, and he is real, and we should tell everybody. He's about he's his real. Realness. I mean, I see Santa taking pictures with dogs here, so I'm convinced that he's real. Uh, what's really interesting is I happen to know that Eliza himself is both Puerto Rican and Jewish. So this might support the theory that Santa, even dog Santa, 
appears uh, to you uh, as yeah. the you know demographic that you yourself are mm-hmm. uh i don't know it's hard it's hard to say for sure but uh you convinced isaac sure yeah so anyway uh take that megan kelly dog santa is a puerto rican jew apparently yeah. one more thing uh Carabine, another listener another great cartoonist <coughs> Uh, wanted to hear our thoughts on the new Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're going to go into that in depth today. We're going to do that on a on a subsequent episode. But excited. I would just like to go around the table and see what what everyone thought because uh, as as you probably know, if you live on the internet like like I do, uh, this is a hotly contested movie. A lot of super fans are not excited about it. Critics loved it. Fans are sort of mixed. Kate, uh, you're not a Star Wars Uber fan. You only saw them for the first time in the last year or two with me and Isaac. Yeah. Um, you've seen all of them now. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about the newest one? How did you think it stacked up? I thought it was really good. Yeah. You know, like for a Star Wars movie, which, you know, I say with some <laughs> amount of <laughs> whatever. Um, Direct your hate mail to Kate, please. Yep, yep, please. You can email me at kate at goscrewyourself.com. <laughs> I still think I liked Rogue One better, huh. uh, maybe, but I might need to rewatch it. No, um, no I, but I thought, it, I thought honestly, I thought it, I thought it was really, really fun and, and really good. And, you know, it had some like, you know, good political messages and it was nice. It's a good movie. All right. So Kate, typical non-fan dilettante, loved the movie. Uh, Isaac, though, we've got an Uber fan over here. Isaac, what did you think of the movie? I have lots of things to say. <laughs> I'll keep it short. I, I loved it. it. I think that the I why I loved it so much, and this is a, a big thing that Uber Star Wars fans like myself actually hate about the movie, which I don't really understand, is that I think it's great that this is like not the one hundred percent typical Star Wars movie. It's different. It has a new spin on it with the new the director. It just like has a different tone, and I think that's really cool. I loved Rogue One. I liked Force Awakens, but you know. Force Awakens was just typical Star Wars. Mm-hmm. In and fact, it was practically every make of A New Hope. Yeah. Um, I, Fan film. Yeah. I just love, love uh, Last Jedi. I think it has some, like, really, really cool ideas that we've never seen in Star Wars, uh, like uh, people getting rich off of selling weapons to mm-hmm. the good and bad guys. I thought mm-hmm. it was awesome. And generally, I just think this movie had the strongest acting that I've seen in, like, all the Star Wars movies. I think it had really strong characters. I agree. Like, in Force Awakens, I think the characters are cool, and I think it sets up a lot, but let's be real, I only really care about Poe Dameron. Yeah. I, I love, like, everybody in this movie. And and Poe Dameron I, got more interesting in this movie, I he think. He did get more interesting. I mean, you can never get enough Poe, but we got a lot, and it was great. People complained that he was, like, not entirely a hero or that he made mistakes but that to me made him a fleshed out interesting yeah, character totally. much more relatable yeah i thought that made him a better character yeah so uh personally stacking up against the other star wars movies yeah uh, just just at the top really yeah. Well, okay, but I mean, you've seen those other Star Wars movies a lot of times. You, you've seen Last Jedi once. I mean, maybe it's not going to hold up to repeated viewings, right? 
I've seen Last Jedi four times. Oh, really? <laughs> I had no idea. Four All times. All in theaters, so, in fact. <laughs> so already it has the Star Wars rewatchability. Yeah. All right, all right. Yeah, um, honestly, I mean, it has not gone any worse. The only thing that has changed about it, which isn't good, is the whole surprise factor. Right. And look, the surprise factor was fantastic in the first one. I was like, I just didn't expect anything to happen. I expected everything the way it happened in Force Well, Awakens. and it kept... St- these different set pieces kept beginning in a very familiar way and you kept thinking like okay like i they're doing yeah. this this thing that happens in all Where the, Star the Wars evil movies. guy monologues and then lightning and, shoots the good guy and, and nothing and... ever went the way you thought it would go as as luke warned uh your Ray. fan theories are wrong yeah this is not going to go the way you think it will um yeah i thought it was great i think we all thought it was great we will we will be back to talk more about it i want crystal fox as a pet okay so i think our next episode so it is going to be, would you rather have a Porg or a Crystal Fox as a pet? Porg. Or, uh, well, I take it back. Kate, Crystal Fox. Kate says Crystal Fox. Crystal Fox. Uh, I said Crystal Fox. Uh, well, okay, I guess we don't have an episode anymore. Uh, we're going to come back and talk about Star Wars more. Um, all right, I think that's I think that's all we got for the Mailbag episode. 48-minute episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Send us your comments on Twitter, on, on Facebook. Mostly on Twitter, I think. We don't really have a Facebook account. Follow Kenan on Facebook. <laughs> and follow me on Twitter and Facebook. We will continue to answer your feedback. We love to hear it. We love that you guys are enjoying the show. We're going to keep coming back at you with more good stuff. Please keep rating and reviewing us on iTunes. We love that too. We will be back soon with another quandary of little consequence. Until then, may all your takes be hot and correct, and we will catch you on the flip side. so loud in here i'm really curious just to hear how much of the incredibly large amount of noise in this apartment shows up i'm only getting you i can't hear anything that's great i hope everyone listening to this has the flu, has the flu.